Hey everybody, this is Luke here, another episode. Just before we get started on this one, a couple of quick things. The first one is that I have a seminar coming up in August with the one and only the muscle doc, Jordan Shallow, that will be in Melbourne. It's a one-off. It's called Systems in Synergy. There'll be a link in the description where you can pick up some tickets. There'll probably just be a few left, but there's been a really good response from this, so check that one out. Look, we might do some more stuff in the future, not sure at this point, so get yourself along. Day one is me and Jordan speaking together, and the day afterwards, day two, is a practical with Jordan at Melbourne Strength Culture, so that will be phenomenal. All right, the other thing is please share this podcast if you enjoy it. Uh, Give a rating on iTunes that is particularly helpful, and if you share it and let some other people know about it, I would be very grateful. All right, let's get into it. So today I'm going to talk a little bit more about the actual energetics, uh, what we're trying to do to generate ATP and how we actually measure the amount of energy that we derive from food and how that ends up actually becoming energy in the body. I think that is a bit of a point of confusion for most people. So we'll get right into it. Right. So when we're talking about energy in the body, the currency that we often talk about is ATP. ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. Now, basically how it works is that the body requires a continuous transfer of energy via chemical bonds. And this involves the conversion of potential energy in macronutrients into ATP. So if you think about energy, it's not created or destroyed. It's simply transferred, right? Well, there are two main types of energy that we're going to be talking about. We have potential energy and we have kinetic energy. And the really simple way to think about this so that your mind doesn't get too warped is that potential energy is similar to having a ball at the top of a hill. Now, obviously, if we give the ball a little nudge, it then starts rolling and we have energy in motion and we call that kinetic energy. So potential energy can sort of be thought of as stored energy. Now, it's going to take some energy inputs to roll that ball back up to the top of the hill and start the process again. And that is regeneration of ATP. So the storage of energy in the chemical bonds of ATP, adenosine triphosphate, is our potential energy source. When those bonds are broken, we have kinetic energy, we have energy in motion, and that essentially funds all of the processes occurring in our body, all of the chemical reactions that occur. And we call all of those chemical reactions together our metabolism. So our metabolism is essentially run by these phosphate bonds, these chemical bonds that are formed in ATP. So ATP acts as the sort of ideal energy transfer agent in our bodies. It's basically the intermediary molecule between the conversion of energy from our food into biological work, into chemical reactions. Now, ATP is not the only thing that we use. There are other things that can form phosphate bonds that we can use as potential energy stores. Uh, The one that springs to mind is something called creatine phosphate. Uh, So there's a phosphate bond there as well, adenosine triphosphate. There are three phosphate groups on adenosine triphosphate. And creatine phosphate also has a phosphate group that can act as a potential energy storage mechanism if you want to think of it that way. So ATP is by far the most abundant and the most important, but there are some others such as creatine phosphate. They just don't really last very long because there's not that much of it in the cells. 
Now, when the adenosine triphosphate loses one of its phosphate groups and we break one of those phosphate bonds, the potential energy that was stored in those chemical bonds ends up being kinetic energy that is used as work to power all of the chemical processes of our body, like I mentioned before. That means we now have adenosine triphosphate losing one of its phosphate bonds, and it becomes ADP, adenosine diphosphate. So we go from three phosphate molecules to two phosphate molecules. And essentially what we're trying to do is just regenerate that ATP molecule again. And that's where we use energy from our food to do. See, we have a limited amount of storage for ATP in our body. We only store about 80 to 100 grams of ATP at any one time. A sedentary 80 kilo person would consume or recycle through approximately 60 kilos of ATP every single day. So if we can only store 80 to 100 grams of ATP at any one time, but we need to consume 60 plus kilograms a day, then you can see that we need to regenerate ATP constantly. During a 2.5 hour marathon, an 80 kilo person might use about 80 kilos of ATP alone. So if you're physically active, you're cycling through even more ATP daily. So it's quite an intensive process and something that we have to constantly recycle. Now, how do we recycle it? Well, you probably are familiar with some of the stages of um, energy development, I suppose, in the body, energy transfer, I like to call it. These metabolic pathways occur within the mitochondria of the cell. So you've probably heard that phrase that the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell, and this is why. So there are three main processes, metabolic pathways, that recycle and regenerate our ATP for us. That is the Krebs cycle, which is also known as the citric acid cycle, and the TCA cycle, it's all the same thing. I'm gonna to refer to it as the Krebs cycle because you're probably gonna be most familiar with that, but ordinarily when I'm talking about this stuff, I actually don't like calling it the Krebs cycle because it's a bit of an outdated terminology, but it's just gonna make it a bit more familiar for you to follow along. So the Krebs cycle, we have uh, beta oxidation, which is when we use fatty acids to regenerate ATP. And then we also have the electron transport chain. And that's where we generate most of our ATP from. So these are the metabolic pathways that we feed in the products of our macronutrients to try and regenerate our ATP that we're consuming on a constant basis throughout the day. Now, we've, before we get into that stuff, I want to talk a bit more about phosphocreatine. So this, as I mentioned before, it represents another high energy phosphate compound within the cell. And we actually use phosphocreatine to replenish local ATP stores. So you might have heard of this before where people say, oh, your short term energy system is the creatine phosphate system and it only lasts for five to eight seconds or whatever. This is what we're talking about. Essentially, ATP is broken down into ADP, so triphosphate. It loses a phosphate group and now we have two phosphates left, so adenosine diphosphate. And that's a reversible reaction. We can reform ATP, provided we have another free phosphate group to stick back onto that ADP. And this phosphate group can be obtained from phosphocreatine. So similar to ATP, and that a large amount of energy is released when that phosphate group is cleaved from creatine, uh, 
that's exactly the same with the phosphocreatine. So it basically allows us to have this short-term energy storage that we can use to replenish our ATP. The cell will often store about four to six times more phosphocreatine than ATP. And when we have a reduction in the amount of ATP in the cell, for example, during exercise, the cell can actually shift into using creatine phosphate to try and reform that ATP. And this is the fastest route to replenish our ATP because we don't need any oxygen um, to do this, okay? So basically what happens is we have this pool of creatine phosphate sitting in the cell. And as energy requirements start going up, for example, during intense exercise, we start depleting our ATP stores. And so the cell goes, oh shit, we need to replenish this ATP or we're not gonna be able to fund any of the function of the cell anymore. We can use that stored creatine phosphate to do that in the short term while we ramp up all of the other metabolic pathways to provide a longer term solution to replenishing our ATP. So that's basically how the creatine phosphate system works. Now the problem is it's quite a small, uh, well a short time period that it can actually fund energy for. So we need that longer term solution in the form of things like glycolysis and the electron transport chain. So we're going to talk about that next. Once we've basically depleted that phosphocreatine store in a very short time period, we now need to rely on some of our other metabolic pathways to continue to replenish our ATP in the cell. Okay, so now we need to produce more ATP and we have a couple of options. We can either use oxygen to do so or we can go without oxygen. If we have some glucose, we can basically go and use no oxygen, and we can produce a little bit of ATP from the breakdown of glucose. This is called glycolysis. Glycolysis basically means breakdown of glucose. We're gonna have a series of 10 enzymatic reactions that make up glycolysis. And what those do is they basically take a glucose and they turn it into another molecule called pyruvate. It does produce a little bit of ATP along the way, but it's only two molecules of ATP, which is very, very few. So it's not a very efficient process. It's a quick process, but it's not efficient. And at the end of this entire process, we have about two molecules of ATP. We have a few hydrogen atoms and we have some pyruvate. Now with that pyruvate, we can actually use that to then feed into our other metabolic reactions to produce even more ATP. So we've used this glucose to produce a little bit of ATP, and now we're gonna use the byproducts of that entire process, pyruvate, to kind of fund the next steps in our metabolic processes. If we have some oxygen present, we can take the pyruvate and we can stick it into the Krebs cycle and create more ATP. We can also turn that pyruvate into lactate which we often refer to as lactic acid, which is not technically correct. It's actually lactate. I'm not gonna go into why. It'll be a little bit too confusing. And we can use this directly as an energy source by some tissues in the body, or we can use it to make more glucose and start the whole glycolysis process again. So just to run through that again, glycolysis is a way that we can use glucose to make a little bit of ATP and to make some pyruvate. The pyruvate basically has two options. We can either take the pyruvate and stick it into the Krebs cycle along with some oxygen to make more ATP again, or we can turn it into lactate and the lactate can be used to make more glucose, which then just enters glycolysis again. 
And so it can keep going through that cycle. So we've basically got a very little amount of ATP from glycolysis and ideally we want more because we're chewing through all of our, uh, our ATP stores. So next up comes the Krebs cycle. Now again, this is also called the citric acid cycle or the tricarboxylic acid cycle, um, but I'm just gonna call it the Krebs cycle. Now, essentially what the, what the Krebs cycle does is it uses molecules that are formed during the breakdown of all of the carbs, protein, and fats that you eat to produce carbon dioxide, to produce some hydrogen, and to produce some ATP. The whole thing basically is designed to produce a bit of ATP, but then just like glycolysis to produce some other molecules that we can then feed into the electron transport chain. And that's really where we're gonna get the most ATP regeneration out of anything so far. Now, the key point here is that this is only possible if we have a reasonable amount of oxygen available to the cell. If we don't have any oxygen available, our only option to make more ATP is glycolysis, breaking down glucose. That's an anaerobic process. So like I said, it doesn't produce very much ATP, but it's pretty quick and you don't need any oxygen to do it. So that's a pretty easy way for the cell to just kind of keep itself running while we wait for the citric acid cycle or the Krebs cycle to go ahead and for the electron transport chain to produce a bunch more ATP for us. So the Krebs cycle itself requires oxygen to be available and it doesn't produce that much ATP itself either. Its main significance is to produce hydrogen donors. There are these two molecules called NADH and FADH. Also some free hydrogen atoms. And all of those basically are used for input into the electron transport chain. So that's the main function of the Krebs cycle to set up the electron transport chain. Most energy for what we call phosphorylation is derived from the oxidation of macronutrients. So all of our macronutrients uh, that we eat, the carbs, the fats, the proteins, can basically produce some intermediaries that run into the Krebs cycle and allow the Krebs cycle to do its thing and make sure that the electron transport chain has those hydrogen donors it needs to make more ATP. Now it's pretty difficult to explain over audio without any pictures how the electron transport chain actually works and it requires a little bit of a working knowledge of biology and chemistry. So I'm not gonna attempt it on this podcast, but essentially during the electron transport chain, we have a bunch of hydrogen ions being pumped across a membrane, and that takes a little bit of time, but it produces quite a lot of ATP by the time we've gotten to the end of the process. So this one by far gives us the biggest yield of ATP, but it takes quite a lot of time. So if we're busy exercising at a very high intensity, depleting our ATP stores, we're popping off those phosphate bonds and we're left with ADP and the cell desperately needs to regenerate that back into ATP again, it's not really a viable strategy to only use the electron transport chain. It's just gonna take way too long because first stuff has to go through the Krebs cycle, then it has to go through this long chain of the electron transport chain bumping these uh, hydrogen ions back and forth across a membrane. It just takes way too long. So that runs on in the background. And in the meantime, the cell basically uses some of the small amounts of ATP generated during glycolysis, glucose breakdown, and some of the small amounts of ATP generated during the Krebs cycle itself, just to keep itself going in the meantime. So all of those things happen at once. They just happen in a different proportion depending on the intensity of exercise or movement you're producing.
So I know there's probably a lot of terminology that's been introduced here and I've gone pretty quickly through the whole process, but just to summarize everything so that you have a bit of an idea of what's going on. Most of our ATP is regenerated during the electron transport chain. This basically involves processing hydrogen that's formed during the Krebs cycle. And that hydrogen comes from the breakdown of carbohydrates, from fats and from amino acids that are fed into the Krebs cycle. This whole process is highly reliant on oxygen. It's aerobic and it occurs within the mitochondria. Anaerobic metabolism that happens without oxygen is powered via glycolysis, the breakdown of glucose, which only produces a small amount of ATP, but it's quite a quick process. Glycolysis or the breakdown of glucose also produces pyruvate and pyruvate can either be used to make lactate, which is then recycled into more glucose, or it enters the Krebs cycle and allows that whole process to carry on and continue. Okay, all of that is super great, but I think the main question that a lot of people tend to have is how do I actually get all of that energy out of my food? So the whole point of the process is to rephosphorylate ADP into ATP. We're adding another phosphate group back on so we can reform our ATP and continue to fund our cellular processes. This is a multi-stage process. It basically starts with the digestion, absorption, and assimilation of the larger food macromolecules. So uh, obviously just the food we're eating. And then we have to break those down into amino acids, into glucose, into fatty acids, uh, and then feed them into the processes that I just mentioned. There are a bunch of processes and enzymes involved in this, energy sensing mechanisms, transport mechanisms, blah, blah, blah. I'm not really gonna mention them because I think it's gonna confuse the overall message. So I'm gonna work our way backwards. The energy from carbohydrate. The primary role of carbohydrate in the body is as a supply for cellular energy. It's the only macronutrient that directly supplies substrates for anaerobic ATP production. Glycolysis, right? Breakdown of glucose. That, that's carbohydrate. And this happens especially during high intensity exercise via the breakdown of glycogen, which is stored glucose in your muscles. So during aerobic exercise, we still get about, you know, a third to half of your energy requirement being supplied by carbs. But as we get higher into anaerobic exercise, that shifts dramatically and we get most of it, if not all, provided from carbohydrate. The aerobic breakdown of carbs for energy occurs much more rapidly than any energy generation from fatty acids, which means carbohydrate play a really essential role in funding exercise because we can just get energy from it a lot faster. And the central nervous system itself also requires this uninterrupted stream of carbohydrate to function properly. If it's available, the brain will almost exclusively use glucose. Now, that's not to say it can't survive on some other fuel sources. So ketones specifically can help supply fuel for the nervous system. But glucose is preferentially used when it's available. Now, where can we get the glucose from? We can actually, obviously we can eat it, but we can also synthesize glucose in the liver and in the kidneys. We could use glycerol, which comes from fatty acids, and we can make glucose out of that. We can also make glucose out of amino acids. And of course, interestingly, the main substrate that we use to make new glucose is pyruvate, which comes out of glycolysis from lactate. So our lactate is in fact not inhibiting our performance in 
the sense that most people think it is. It's actually helping provide more of a substrate to produce new glucose and it can even be used as a fuel directly by some cells in the body. Okay, what about fats? We can use triglycerides uh, under resting conditions. Approximately half of our energy used by most organs and even by skeletal muscle actually comes from fat. Most of it's stored in our fat cells as triglycerides and those are released uh, when we need to reform ATP. Now the drawback of using fats is that they need oxygen to be broken down. So fatty acid breakdown relates directly to oxygen consumption because to actually burn fats and produce ATP from them, it's dependent on oxygen to join up with the hydrogen that we produced during the Krebs cycle. The structure of fatty acids means that we can actually produce a lot of ATP from one molecule of fat. The fatty acids have really long carbon chains, which means each one can produce a lot more ATP molecules compared to a glucose molecule. So, you know, it kind of feels like fat might be the ultimate fuel source, right? It can pack a lot of chemical material required to make more ATP in a small package. But the problem is that producing that takes a lot more time and glucose is much easier to use preferentially uh, by the nervous system and by working muscles. Now, we can also derive energy from protein. So the amino acids, and especially a few of them, like the BCAAs and glutamine, can be converted into a substrate for energy transfer. Uh, basically, what has to happen is first the nitrogen molecule in the amino acid has to be removed, and then the carbon skeletons that are left over are used directly for ATP production. Some amino acids can be turned into glucose, uh, and the same thing happens. We remove the nitrogens first, and then the liver can process them and produce glucose from those amino acids. We can produce ketone bodies from some amino acids as well. So all of the macronutrients in their own way can be broken down to basically yield all of the little chemical components, all the ingredients we need to create inputs to regenerate our ATP. All right, so all of this is bringing me to how we actually measure the energy that is in your food. The point of me going through all of this is to explain that we're trying to work out how much ATP we can regenerate per gram of carbohydrate, fat, or protein. That's basically the end goal. So let's start with how we actually measure the energy in food. Obviously, you've all heard of the word calorie. Um, when we talk about calories in food, we're actually usually talking about kilocalories or calories with a big C. So quite often you'll see me write KCAL in all of my posts on Instagram, for example, um, and that's why. The rest of the world, uh, generally speaking, uses kilojoules. So outside of nutrition, any scientists, uh, you know, engineers, things like that, tend to use joules and kilojoules. That's the internationally recognized unit of energy for electrical uh, or mechanical heat. Uh, one joule is the amount of work done when one newton force acts through a distance of one meter, which we call a newton meter. Pretty, uh, pretty helpful, huh? I think the calorie is probably a little bit easier for us to use when we're talking about food and, you know, the average person. Okay, so basically one 
small c calorie is the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of a liter of water by one degree Celsius. That's the technical definition. So we're talking about how much heat is contained in the food and we're, what we're really thinking about is how much ATP can I regenerate with this? So how do we work out how much that is contained in a particular food? This is literally how scientists do it. They have a big machine that they call a bomb calorimeter. This is used in a lab to determine the energy value of the food. And I'd encourage you to just Google a quick image of the bomb calorimeter, but I'm going to explain it quickly now. Essentially what it is, is it's a sealed chamber. So it's completely uh, insulated so that no heat comes in or escapes. And because we know that uh, one calorie raises a, a, a certain amount of water, a certain amount of temperature, we can basically stick the food in a sealed chamber surrounded by water. We can ignite the food and that's done with an electrical current so that we're not introducing any outside heat. And then we can measure the change in the temperature of the water that surrounds the food and determine exactly how much heat has been released and therefore how much energy was in that food. So once it's completely burned, we measure the change in temperature in the water and we can tell then how many calories were contained in that food by how much heat was released and heated up the water. So the change in water temperature is measured. Again, the chamber is completely insulated from the outside to avoid heat loss. So it's a, it's a closed system for all intents and purposes. And that's literally how they do it. So we call this the heat of combustion. It's the total amount of heat liberated from the food and that represents the total energy value of the food. Now, fats, carbohydrates, proteins all liberate a different amount of heat. So triglyceride molecules, like I mentioned before, have a chemical structure that basically means that per gram, they can release more heat, they can produce more energy. So the average of one gram of animal fat will actually release 9.5 kilocalories per gram, whereas the average of one gram of dairy fat will release 9.25 kilocalories per gram. And that's because the chemical structure is slightly different. Now, every type of fat will have a slightly different chemical structure, which means it has a slightly different energy value in it. You're probably panicking right now thinking, do I need to track all of my different grams of fats differently? You don't. We have an average value. If we average all of that out, we get 9.4 kilocalories per gram of fat. Now, you're probably also thinking, but I normally use nine grams. What's the deal with that? I'm gonna to get to it, don't worry. Carbohydrates, again, they have a specific energy value in each gram of carbohydrate that varies depending on the exact chemical composition. So to give you an example, glucose contains 3.74 calories, kilocalories per gram. Uh, glycogen and starch is a bit different, 4.2. So it's quite a difference over there. The average is 4.2. Protein basically uh, has two main factors that affect the energy content of protein. Again, it's the type of chemical structure of the protein itself and particularly how much nitrogen is available in that protein. We can't actually use the nitrogen to produce energy. So if we have more nitrogen in a gram of protein, uh, in a particular chemical structure of protein, um, then we can't produce as much energy from that because we can't use that nitrogen. So some proteins have a lower relative nitrogen content, so like uh, eggs and corn and beans. And so they have 5.75 calories per gram, but the average protein value is 5.65 calories per gram. 
Um, now that's quite a lot higher than the average value that we normally use, which is four calories per gram for protein. Why do we use four calories for protein, four calories for carbs, and nine calories for fat when we actually get different values to that when we use this calorimetry, bomb calorimeter burning method? The reason why is because we use the net energy values. So this form of measuring how many calories are in the foods is called direct calorimetry, and it measures the gross energy, the total amount of energy that's contained within the food. But we use the net energy values. The net energy is the amount that's actually available to be used by the body. So to give you an example, like I mentioned before, the body cannot oxidize nitrogen. Therefore, protein actually has a lower net energy value than the other macronutrients. Digestive efficiency is also accounted for when we're talking about the available energy contents of the food. Um, so scientists have tried to come across a method to try and evaluate this, try and account for it by the digestibility coefficient, they call it, which basically describes how much of a food is actually digested, absorbed, and utilized by the body. Obviously, that's very difficult to do depending on the certain food type you're eating. Um, you know, some fibers are completely indigestible. Others can be digested by the gut bacteria to produce some fats that we then absorb and use, and that could potentially give us a higher energy value for some fibers over others. It's very difficult to determine, so we don't really worry about that too much. But there can be vast differences in how digestible a food is in each macronutrient category. So to give you an example, the protein in legumes is only about 78% digestible, but for meats, it's about 97% digestible. Another really good example is egg protein, so the protein, the egg white. This is often referred to as the highest or one of the highest quality protein sources you can get, but uncooked eggs actually have a digestibility of only about 50%. But once we cook it, it's over 90%. So that's quite a difference. Now, the average values of four, four, and nine but it does mean that once we account for the digestibility of the food, the average values, the net energy values for protein, uh, if we're adding up all of the proteins and averaging them out, is about 4.05 calories per gram. So four calories a gram for protein. For fats, it's 8.93. So we just round that up to nine calories per gram of fat. For carbohydrate, once we get the net energy values, we end up with 4.03. So again, we just average it to four. And that's how come we get the values of four, four and nine calories per gram of each of the macronutrients. And again, just to bring that all back to what we were talking about earlier in the podcast, this means that it's basically describing how much ATP we can regenerate or produce through the Krebs cycle glycolysis and the electron transport chain to regenerate our ATP in the body. Each gram of those macronutrients provides a certain amount of energy that we can use to regenerate ATP and therefore push the ball back to the top of the hill so that we have some potential energy to use whenever we need to do anything in the body. We need to transfer energy from the food we eat into metabolic function and movement. And all forms of biological work that we do require a direct input of chemical energy. We refer to this as bioenergetics. So we're basically transferring this energy from the bonds in our food 
into the bonds of ATP. We are taking that stored energy and we're releasing the potential energy to turn it into kinetic energy when we need to move. The chemical reactions are basically changing one substance into another one. We're breaking the chemical bonds, we're reforming them in a different configuration and ATP and phosphocreatine just happen to be the most useful forms, the easiest forms for our body to deal with to store energy in. So fundamentally what we're doing is we're taking all of the chemical structure of those big macromolecules, the proteins, the fats and the carbs, we're breaking them all down, we're pulling them apart and we're reassembling them into ATP and to a lesser extent phosphocreatine, but mostly ATP. It's just the most convenient way to store potential energy. They're like our little battery packs that we use inside the body. Okay, I'm gonna stop there. I'm sure some of you probably have a bit of a headache after listening to me talk through all of that. I kind of tried to do it in reverse so that we could go from the really nitty gritty and actually turn it into something that's a little bit more tangible in terms of like, how do we actually work out how much energy is in foods? Uh, hope that's been helpful. If you have any questions, you can definitely let me know. I'll put my contact details in the description and uh yeah keep an eye out for the next one again please uh rate it subscribe it, all that good stuff and share it with your friends if you found it helpful and i'll catch you in the next one thanks very much guys